Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. It's been a while. Hope you guys missed me. Um, but we've got a good show today. It is entitled Top 10 Mix Mistakes and How to Fix Them. Now this is something that uh, I've recently added into the book, uh, which is uh, getting very, very close to being done. I'm really excited for you guys to... Uh, to get a hold of the second edition of three-dimensional mixing. Um, but this is something that I talk about later in the book. And basically, I went on a, uh, a couple of weeks where I was talking to uh, some peers of mine and some people I admire and just some mixing friends and some guys that do audio part-time and, like, anyone that I could to try to gather information. I also t- had a couple conversations with various mastering engineers and just tried to ask everyone, you know, a, what what do you feel is your biggest problem in your mixes, or what are the biggest mix mistakes that you see, depending on, you know, where they are in terms of their ability. You know, some of these guys that I know have been uh, mixing for, you know, six months and just started their home studio, and I am and I wanted to ask them, you know, what, what are the things you struggle with? And um, I tried to compile a list of the top ten mix mistakes Number one, because uh, I wanted to show that you're not alone in the problems that you may be experiencing. And number two, I wanted to help maybe give you a reason why you're experiencing these things. Because, sure, I could cop out and say, oh, well, your mixes have too much low end uh, when you take it to the car. Well, just uh, keep on working at it. You know, you're not good enough yet. But that's not that's not necessarily the whole truth. Um, so I'd say let's just get right into it. I'm really excited about this list. Um, some of them might hit, hit a little close to home. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but, uh, I've really tried to, uh, to work hard here and, and give you guys concrete answers to some problems you might be experiencing. All right. So these are in no particular order. Um, but, uh, I'm just going to start with two of the most obvious ones. Uh, and the first one is... Too much or not enough low end. Uh, now, it's much more common to have too much low end. It, it can be quite common to have not enough low end. And what I've found is that 90% of the time, the issues are caused by room acoustics and monitoring. And I know I don't want to get on another rant about it, but um, from from guys that have talked to me about this and have taken my advice and you know treated their rooms, they'll know, they'll be able to tell you it makes a big, big difference, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, but untreated or poorly treated or, you know, improperly treated rooms can have dips in the response, peaks and dips of plus 20 dB here and minus 15 dB right next to it. You know, you could have plus 25 dB at 100 hertz and then minus 15 dB you know, from a center line, from an ac, you know, if you consider your center line accurate and flat, I mean, even if your room is somewhat treated, you can have plus 20 dB at 100 hertz and minus 15 dB at 110 hertz or 120 hertz. And if you've got, you know, a bunch of peaks in your room, you're going to hear way more low end than there really is. Similarly, even if you have your peaks somewhat controlled, if the decay times in your room are out of control. So your response might look decent uh, when graphed, you know, with measurement microphone and software. 
your response might look decent frequency-wise, but the decay time in the low end, if that is out of control and, you know, the decay times are super long, you will hear that as more low end to your ear. That will sound like more low end, even though the frequency response on paper appears fairly flat. Um, So 90% of the time, that's what the issue is is having, you know, if you take it to your car and you have too much low end, the same can happen if you don't have enough low end. You take it to the car and, you know, you feel like there's a ton of uh, a ton of bass in your room. You take it to the car and there's none. And all the time I get the question, well, you know, I listen to commercial mixes on my setup and they sound good. Uh, and the truth of the matter, it's it's really impossible to just compare a commercial mix because commercial mix has been mastered and, um, you know, it's been mixed by someone usually very skilled who's been doing this a long time, whose mixes, and I don't know how else to say it, but they sound good everywhere. And they, these guys know how to do that from the beginning of the recording through the mix and through the master. They know how to make the recording sound good everywhere. And that's something that takes time and practice. You know, that would be, you know, great translation. And that's such a huge goal in making mixes is making sure like aside from like capturing the energy and all these like artistic things we just want to be able to take it to the freaking car and it sound awesome right that's all that i mean that's such a huge deal to us we want to be able to take it on a pair of headphones and it's not ripping our eardrums out with harshness or with low end or with no low end we want to be able to play it back on a laptop and have it sound halfway decent, right? Translation is so important to what we do, and it's not even really a like a creative thing. You know, it's not like artistic to have good translation. It's just like a must-have. It's like a requirement. Like, okay, that's cool and all, but it sounds like crap in the car. And it's, you know, it still comes down to that. So having too much low-end or not enough low-end is either a factor of, you know, often when you have too much low end, it's a factor that combines the room issues, but also people that don't necessarily have speakers that are large enough to produce the low end that they need. What really counts is, you know, if you can get somebody, a friend, or, or get the stuff yourself to measure your room. And, I mean, we're engineers. We're, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable measuring and, like, collecting data, Right. Um, so understand what's going on in your room. Another factor is just time getting used to the sound of a flatter space. Now, when I got into my studio, my new studio back in 2014, early, early 2014, I had been working in my old place a long time and it took me a while to get adjusted to this place. And I kept I didn't have enough money to, to treat it all as much as I needed to right up front. And so I was like adding stuff here and there. And I was like, man, I know that so many of my listeners are going through this where they're like, well, I can't just spend five grand right now and treat this whole room. I'm going to have to get like corner panels first and then maybe add some more on the sides and then just kind of work my way up. And it was really difficult. And I totally feel for you guys. I totally have been there a handful of times. And, uh, you know, I hadn't done it in a while. And so I was reminded and I remember going through that and thinking, man, this sucks, you know, having to relearn the room essentially every couple of months, you know, I'll upgrade this, I'll upgrade that, I'll upgrade my, 
you know, my treatments and I'll, you know, I'll find a better position for my speakers or for my listening placement. I'll move stuff around in the room and, you know, then I'd have to relearn it. So my advice for you is just keep working, keep listening. I started doing something uh, once I got my room to where I on, you know, on paper, it was about as good as it was going to get. Uh, which was really about uh, three or four months ago. I've been tweaking it for the last year and a half since I've been in been in the new studio. Really, just this past summer, I really felt like you know what? There's really not much more I can do to this room. It looks great on paper. It sounds great to me. My decay times are in check. My response is in check. I mean, all the things were looking good. So I decided, okay, every day for the next month I'm going to come out here early 30 minutes early and I'm going to listen to music I'm going to sit in my chair and I'm going to listen to music not just music I like but mixes that I like and so I made a playlist uh, on my phone that had probably 300 songs on it a lot of songs I I went through all kinds of genres every genre you can think of from jazz to metal to pop to folk, hip hop, every genre you can imagine and picked out, you know, bands that I like, artists that I like, old, new, from Steely Dan to most deaf, you know what I mean? Anything. And uh, just picked out mixes that I liked. So I just would turn on the playlist, hit play, you know, hit, put it on shuffle and um, yeah, and just let it play and just sit there for, you know, 30 minutes and listen to music, answer emails. And I did that every day. And over time, you know, you just slowly get used to doing it. You slowly get used to hearing your room. To me, that's a better way to, quote, learn your room in a condensed amount of time than just mix, take it to the car, mix, take it to the car, mix, take it back. to You know what I mean? And keep doing that game, especially when you're like making money doing it. You can't really deal with that situation, you know, for six months, a year, two years you can't deal with that too long before it starts to drive you insane. And so I would just advise you, get your room in check. Make sure your monitors can really produce down low. I mean, we're, I would say your monitors need to be able to produce down to 30, 40 hertz if possible. It doesn't have to necessarily be amazing down there, like super flat down there. But if they can produce it pretty well, it's felt a lot more than it's heard. But it's still relevant. And a kick drum can, you know, kick drums are usually anywhere from, uh, you know, 40 to 100, depending on the genre and all that stuff. They tend to be more like, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80. Um, but in some genres, they go all the way up to 100 and uh, whatnot. Anyway, point being, get your room in check, spend some time, make a playlist of music that you really admire mix-wise, not just... Not only stuff that you like. I mean, you need to like it, sure. But but really focus on good mixes and try to listen to them f like on the best system that you can and make sure that you're actually gauging a good mix. And these should probably be commercially released, you know, records. Not just like some random indie band necessarily that no one's ever heard of. I mean, and I only, I don't mean to like push those guys out of the water, but I'm, I'm mainly considering, you know, the big name guys, the big, or at least bigger name records had, you know, very 
very successful mix engineers, very successful engineers, very successful producers, very successful mastering engineers working on them. And, you know, for a reason, they sound amazing. Um, they had a great team. So do that. Try to learn your room. Uh, and I will say it, it is almost it's kind of useless to try to learn a room that's incorrect because one day when you realize that I'm that old, old Kindle's right about acoustic treatment and about monitor speaker placement and about listener placement and about all these acoustic issues and how serious they are and how they can ruin your entire perception of music and you have to relearn it all. As soon as you realize that I'm right and you decide to take care of those issues, then you can listen to music. Otherwise, I don't see the point in trying to learn a room that's incorrect. That'll just cause way more problems down the line, I assure you. And I'm saying this from personal experience. When you finally get your room in check, you'll listen back to things, and sometimes it'll sound a little thin for you, uh, or a little thick, or whatever. It'll sound probably different than you're used to um, because it's accurate, and we very rarely are in accurate rooms um, in our lives. Uh, you know, mo most like kitchens, bedrooms, living rooms, whatever, they're not treated. So we're very rarely in rooms that are accurate. And some people would say things like, well, why, why do you work so hard to make your room accurate if nobody's listening on an accurate system? And it's because I know from experience that translation for, for to get good translation to other systems you really have to have an accurate system. It's just the truth because an accurate system will be accurate in the lows, in the low mids, the mids, the high mids, and the highs, which means regardless of the system that you're on, each frequency region should still be represented well. And you should, you know, the mix as a whole should be represented well. Another piece of advice I'll give in terms of uh, once you once you make your playlist of mixes that you like and you spend a little time every day, 20, 30 minutes, it can be at the beginning of your day, I would recommend, so your ears aren't tired. Once you once you get that all worked out and, you know, hit play, um, try not to move your volume control. Try to just set it fairly low or, or set it roughly around the level where you mix, maybe, and and just leave it there. Just kind of let it play in the room and get used to it. Don't, you know, don't really dig in. Don't, you know, turn stuff up and down and listen and mute you know, the left side, mute the right side, and, like, really try to dig into the mix. This isn't for analysis, okay? This is for, like, osmosis. You're trying to, like, absorb the sound of music in your room. Um, so, yeah, that would be number one. That was a long-winded answer for number one. Uh, I promise the others won't be this long-winded, um, but it's a really common problem. Too much or not enough low-end. Um, so, yeah, I'll move on to number two, which is a much shorter answer. Number two is a mix that has way too much top end. And I mean, you know, above 5K, above maybe even 6 or 7K. Uh, it's a habit of a lot of people to, to sometimes boost this region on certain instruments, just almost out of habit. Acoustic guitar, cymbals, vocal, you know, percussion, things like that. And, and in truth, you often don't necessarily need to boost as much as you might think. And don't just boost, like I will see some guys that will boost a shelf on overheads, on overhead mics, um, and they're like, just add a little more prettiness to the cymbals. I hear that phrase all the time, you know, add a little more pretty, prettiness to the cymbals. And it's a rock song. It's like, 
Oh, I I thought rock and roll was supposed to be intense, not pretty. Um, that's a, that's a separate issue. We'll we'll talk about that in a, in a second. <laughs> um, but my point is, some guys will just add stuff. Like I see acoustic guitar players that'll add all this like high shelf to their acoustic guitar, and it loses a lot of woodiness. You know, because you're so focused on this ching ching ching, like this really high bright picky acoustic that maybe to the ear sounds good initially but if you really you know compare it to other acoustic guitars or like what an acoustic guitar sounds like in real space that's not what it sounds like that's not what acoustic guitars sound like they don't have tons of 15k uh i mean sure there's some harmonics up there but there's they're not like piled on uh you guys will cut too much low mids and boost highs and a lot of times guys will add high end in an effect to get clarity out of something. Now, in truth, clarity is not just from the highs. Um, you can you can add some clarity back and kind of create an illusion of a more clear sounding source by manipulating the high end well. But clarity really comes from the entire spectrum. Um, you can have clear lows and clear mids and clear high mids and clear low mids like it comes from primarily the source. You know, if you have a crappy sounding bass with old strings, those lows are going to sound muddy and thuddy and dull. Regardless of how much top end is left in the bass, the lows are not going to sound clear and defined. Similar to poorly tuned drums, toms, kick drum, uh, snare drum, tiny, tiny rooms recording uh, guitars or uh, recording piano or recording guitar cabinets. Electric guitar doesn't seem to be a huge problem, but like acoustic guitar in a small room, you know, things like that. Uh, using the wrong strings on a, on a guitar or a bass, using the wrong pick, having bad technique. Little things like that add up big time. Clarity comes from everywhere, from the room, from the source, from the tuning, from the, you know, the pick, from the strings, the drum heads. I mean, all this stuff. Don't necessarily reach for top end if you're trying to make something clearer. Okay, I would check for where does it sound unclear and then try to fix that. So if it's in the lows, the low mids, the mids, the high mids, you know, is something really not, is it not speaking in a certain range? You know, for electric guitar, for example, you don't need 10K on electric guitar. You don't need, you hardly will need 5K on electric guitar sometimes, but um, you don't need a lot of it, uh, at least, compared to, say, the mids or like, 2k 3k on a guitar on an electric guitar is a little more uh, you know where they live as opposed to like 7k 8k like electric guitars don't need a ton of that it's mostly just like fizz then prioritize what gets top end you know i would say it's probably a safe bet that a vocal could have some of that you know that adds an intimacy to the vocal but if the vocal doesn't need to be intimate don't add it you know, if if the symbols don't need to be pretty, don't add it. Don't just add it because you think that's going to somehow, you know, make more sense. Okay, just prioritize what goes up there because the fewer elements you have in a certain frequency region, say the lows, for example, below 100 hertz or 80 hertz, it's pretty much kick and bass. Above 10K or above even 5, 6, 7K, there's really not a, necessarily a ton of stuff up there. 
You know, there's like maybe some fizz from guitar. There's some cymbals or like percussion, like shakers or tambourines. There might be a little acoustic guitar up there. Uh, and I'm not saying to chop it off like, you know, like a steep filter or anything. I'm just, you don't necessarily need to add is what I'm saying. I've seen guys that will add, you know, highs to everything. And, and sure, sometimes adding like a little EQ on the master bus is cool and it works, but I'm talking like a dB, 2 dB, maybe. And so generally you don't need a ton of top end added. If you need to add top end to something, then add it if that's the right decision, but don't don't compulsively add it okay that it it's that is not like necessarily a room issue or like a monitoring issue i mean it could be the monitors the monitors you're working on you know might not have enough up in that region which in that case i would probably recommend either get new monitors or check the mix on headphones um headphones generally have a decent top end it's not hard to produce you know 20k with a tiny speaker um so Check the mix on headphones and listen up there. Don't listen to your low end on headphones. Listen to your top end. It's a, it, it's actually pretty good at that. Uh, you know, listen for 8K, 10K, 6K. Uh, you know, listen for air on instruments. How many, how many instruments have that shininess to them? Uh, you generally don't need a lot. And it, and it will be a very easy thing to make your mix sound amateur if everything has you know, air boosted in an attempt to get clarity. Number three. Now this one is, I'm just going to go ahead and handle all the frequency issues first. Too much high mid information. And when I say high mid, I mean like, say we could, we could go as low as 1k up to maybe 5k. All right. Now this is, this is something that mastering engineers have told me often uh, is that there will be, you know, too much like 1K, 2K, 3K, or it's just what's there is just harsh. And, uh, you know, some mixes they'll get. I had one mastering engineer tell me the other day, he's like, man, I got this mix the other day that was just like 4K was just like ripping off my face. Now, a little fact, when you start to go deaf in your old age, uh, 4K is about the first thing to go. That's probably not a good sign for uh, for this <laughs> for this mixer, and it makes so much sense, really, because our ears are most sensitive to high mids more than any other frequency region. You know, I would say uh, like two to four k is our ears' most sensitive range. We will hear those frequencies louder than the entire rest of the range, given the exact same volume. They will sound the loudest. Um, that's just how our ears work. We are sensitive to speech frequencies up in those high mids, you know, 1K to 5K. That's a really sensitive region. Um, so be very careful. Again, similar to top end, be very careful what you're actually adding here. Um, I find myself not really needing to add much in this region. Every now and then you'll boost a little bit here and there. But for the most part, I'm more likely to you know, work on lows, low mids, mids, and highs, either cutting or boosting, you know, depending, rather than touch high mids. I don't really know why, but, uh, you know, high mids are, I'm very sensitive to high mids. My, I don't know if it's my ears or whatever, but they really, 
get on my nerves and too much is like it's just painful to listen to and you know having too much like 3k 4k 5k like it can just really be painful on my ears um and i think it's one reason why the ns10s were so popular because they have a boost in the in those high mids you know starting at like i don't know like 700 and going up to like 3k or something they have a boost and uh, I haven't looked at a graph in a long time, but they, they're a little quacky in that region. And that caused mix engineers to cut that region a little bit. Um, and that's been a big shaping factor in the sound of modern music because the NS10s are so popular with some of those classic engineers. I mean, anyone from CLA to I mean, so many people have used them. So I'm not saying they're magical or anything. I'm just saying Try to be very careful about that region. Uh, that's probably the the most the most common thing. That aside from the low end issue, those two, the low end and the upper mid harshness, were the two most mentioned by the mastering engineers that I talked to. Now I've listened to a lot of mixes from people of all different skill levels, and you know I hear this a lot. I hear a quackiness or a harshness in that upper mids, a nasaliness. Um, it's very common on vocals to just ignore this nasaliness, um, which can be really helped by either multiband compression centered around those sort of high mids um, or a de-esser uh, centered, you know, down lower, like 2K, 3K, 4K. Um, de-essers, you know, they don't just work for S's, okay? They're not like, they're just frequency dependent compressors. Um, so it's nothing like voodoo. I mean, you you tell it where to compress. Um, so, for example, you can set one to 3K or 4K, and that'll allow you to keep the vocal loud, but when that region gets really harsh, the de-esser will pull that area down, and the vocal, the rest of the vocal is still getting louder, but that, that part's being pulled down. Again, our ears are so sensitive to that region, um, you know, too much, and it's just, I mean, it's really too much. Don't don't fall into the trap of like, oh, boost a little lows and cut a little low mids and boost a boost somewhere in the high mids to accentuate. Like you don't need to do any of those things unless you need to. Okay, don't boost lows just to like, oh, I need to enhance the fundamental. Do you? I mean, do you really need to enhance the fundamental? Oh, I need to cut low mids because it's muddy there. Is it muddy though? You know what I mean? I think you guys get what I'm saying. Like don't just cut something there to cut like the like this like proverb the proverbial mud like oh no i i have to avoid mud so i need to cut low mids on everything and it's like no you cut low mids on the stuff that's getting in the way that's making it muddy you don't have to cut low mids on something if it's not getting in the way uh, you know what i mean if it's not muddy <laughs> uh like and you don't have to boost some high mid frequency to accentuate the attack or like whatever of an instrument unless that instrument needs to be accentuated in that region, unless it needs to stand out there. You know, if it's like a pad or something like how that needs to sit back, like how much 1.5 K does that really need? So I think basically the moral of the story for harshness is try to be sensitive to that region. Don't just add something there because and again, you have to focus on like priorities, what's important. Um, that leads us in very well to number four. Number four is not enough focus on the vocal. 
I see way too many mixers that will start into a mix and just start soloing up the kick drum and soloing up the drums and working on the bass and all this stuff, right? And I've said it before in shows and I'll say it again. You know, if it's a song that there is a vocal and the vocal is like the important part, you know, obviously if it's like an instrumental thing or like a like a jazz big band type thing or an ambient rock deal or a punk rock song, the vocal might not be the most important part. But for a lot of music, a lot of music, rock, pop, hip hop, folk, a lot of this stuff, country, uh, you know, Christian and worship music, tons of music out there. The vocal is the most important factor. And too many times uh, people will just wait till the end and just slap it on top. And they'll have to EQ and make it sound all good and everything. And it's just, it's, I, trust me, I used to do it. I, and I always wondered how come I couldn't get my vocal to sit in the mix? How could I, you know, how come I couldn't get that to work? And why does my vocal sound awkward and all this stuff? Well, think about the process that you're doing. You're making a, a mix of a band and then you're just setting a vocal on top of it. And you wonder why it's not fitting in the mix. Well, because you didn't fit it in the mix. You didn't give it a space. So what's the solution? Getting the vocal right early. I had a podcast specifically about that. I don't know, a couple months ago, maybe. There needs to be some sort of reference. And the kick drum is not the best reference, okay? Unless it's like house music with no vocal, kick drum might be the best reference. Um, but generally, the vocal is the most important part of the song, which means start with it, okay? And the vocal is one of those few things in the mix that you can actually get away with soloing for quite some time. The vocal should sound good, soloed or in the mix. Unlike, say, a hi-hat, doesn't really matter how it sounds in solo, or even an electric guitar, or even a bass, or a kick, they might sound kind of awkward on their own, but in the mix they work really well, and that's fine. But a vocal should sound really good on its own. So get it right early. Make sure that it's full enough. Make sure that there's enough top end. Make sure that the mids aren't harsh. Make sure that it's uh, it's even enough for the, you know, it's compressed or it's whatever that, that works right for that song. Then build your song around the vocal. I know it's hard. I know it's unusual if you're not used to doing it that way. But build the song around the vocal because how you process the vocal and if you can get the vocal to sound awesome, right, or even like 70% of the way there, it doesn't have to be like automated and have effects on it or anything. Just get it to sound good. Then you actually have a reference for your decisions. You actually have something that you can say, oh, well, I know that I can't add too much of this on the electric because this is my vocal. And it would probably be a smart thing to just say, all right, I'm not going to touch my vocal again until the end of the mix. That way, you've made sure that you haven't done like crazy processing on the vocal and you're not trying to fit the vocal in the mix. Instead, you are mixing around the vocal, which makes it so much easier to make the vocal fit because you've been mixing to make it fit from the beginning. And ideally, you try not to leave the vocal muted. Like you you work on it in solo up front early on in the mix, but then you leave it in, you know, vocal and drums. Uh, then add in the bass. And try not to, try not to, like, listen to too few things at once, okay? So, like, once you get vocal and drums working, 
Then add in the bass and keep drums, vocal, bass. Then add in the keys, drums, vocal, bass, keys. Add in the guitars, drums, vocal, ba- you know what I mean? So try not to try to, not to just like, okay, time to work on these guitars. Now, if you hear something that's weird and you need to focus in on it, sure, solo something up. But try to avoid it. Try to avoid the solo button. Try to work, you know, around the vocalist. Try to work around that vocal. Try to understand what the song is about. Um, it's so, so important. And I, tr- and I promise you, if you, if you spend just that little extra time up top working on the vocal and you try to mix around it, your mixes will vastly improve. And, and, and especially when, you know, it's much easier to focus on those things because the vocal so important, like often as simple as this may sound by the end of the mix, you don't really want to be working on like the most important part of the song when you're tired, you know, at the end of the mix, like five, six hours in, eight hours in, 10 hours in, however many, you know, 20 hours in, two weeks in, whatever. You don't want to be working on the vocal at the end and just hope it works, right? That's a bad gamble. Uh, And you're tired. You've been working with it so long. You're kind of jaded at this point. You're not really sure if the mix is working. And then you're crossing your fingers that the vocal's going to work. You know, that's dangerous. Uh, That's real dangerous. So get the vocal right early. Don't touch it after that for a while, at least for a little while, and then build a band around it. Keep the focus on the vocal. Keep keep that in mind the whole time. Number five, clarity and separation issues. Now, we talked about clarity a little bit before. It's it's kind of a widespread problem, and I, I know that a lot of it comes from recording. You know, like I was talking about, bass strings, guitar strings, drum heads, things like that, muddy-sounding rooms, uh, you know, proximity effect, people standing too close to a mic. Clarity and separation starts starts in the recording process. But if you're mixing something that's already been recorded, the best you can do is try to take out the the muddiness rather than try to pull clarity out of a hat, you know, like it's a magic trick. Try to take out the muddiness that is there rather than add something that may or may not be there in the first place. You know, if you've got dull bass strings, there's no 5K. There, I mean, no, it's not there. Um, so try to just remove some of the muddiness rather than trying to add something that doesn't exist. Um, now, separation. Separation is tricky um, because separation comes in a, in a few different dimensions. It comes in the separation of things that are close to you and the things that are far away from you. So the depth of the mix separation comes in the form of left to right so things that are in the center things that are on the left things that are on the right panning and stereo space separation also comes from frequencies things like you know below 80 hertz there's pretty much just kick and bass below you know, above 10k there's just you know upper harmonics of a couple instruments uh, and and the the separation of instruments that occupy you know, 100 hertz to 10K in the main primary region of what we're hearing um, on most instruments. I mean, that is difficult and it takes time and it takes patience and you just have to keep doing it. Um, you have to find where an instrument speaks. And I'm not saying to boost it there, but I'm saying that make sure that region is present. So if a guitar is, you know, speaking... I just, I don't, I I could come up with a better way to say that, but that just makes the most sense to me. 
you know, I guess where where an instrument's voice really is on guitar, electric guitar, to me, it's often at like uh, 1.5K to 3 or 4K, sometimes 5K if it's a more chimey guitar, but it's somewhere in that region where it really speaks, right? Where it really, that's where the bulk of it is coming from. Yes, there's lows and they're important, but like the edge of that electric guitar, like its function in the mix, where is that? You know what I mean? Um, like on a kick drum, the function of the kick drum is primarily like the lows, say 60, 70, 80 hertz, and then somewhere in the high mids. So just make sure that you don't necessarily have to boost those regions, but make sure that those regions are there and they're speaking. You know, the function of a vocal in a mix is mostly mid-range function. So like maybe, I don't know, 150 hertz to... 5k like sure there's top end and there might be a little more low end below that but mostly like vocals are are a mid-range heavy instrument and so every instrument sort of has their function just make sure that those things are there and for a big common problem that i'll find on mixes guys that uh will do say um pads right pads are generally recorded very full range from you know, 20 hertz all the way up to 20K. But most of the time, you don't need hardly any of that. Um, Say you have this pad that's kind of airy and pretty. I mean, you could probably high pass that up to like 2K and just use the airy prettiness part because that's what the function is of that part. You don't necessarily need all that low end. I know you probably don't need all that low end. If you have a bass synth, You know, you don't need like the harmonics up at like 20K or like 15K or 10K. You might need like 5K um, and you might not need like 500 hertz or 600 hertz or 700 hertz. Um, But you need those fundamental and the upper frequency thing. Again, you don't necessarily have to boost them and try to stay away from, you know, just boosting something because you're like, oh, I'm supposed to boost here because that's where it's, you know, like on a kick or something like, oh, I'm supposed to boost some attack. Like, again, only do what you got to do. But as far as separation goes, you know, things have a function. They have a space. They have a, an area where they speak primarily. Just make sure that those are speaking and and don't feel like you have to have tons of stuff in the lows for the mix to sound full. Okay, that's a myth. You don't have to have tons of stuff in the highs for the mix to sound clear and pretty. You don't have to have, you know, I think you're getting the drift. Another common problem I find with clarity and separation issues, I've, I've encountered recently with some mixes from uh, podcast listeners that have emailed me um, or even from just uh, people that I know that have sent me mixes to, to listen to. Do not be afraid of hard panning things. Don't be afraid of panning something hard left or hard right. As you may know from previous episodes, I'm really big into LCR uh, panning, but I also will use the 50, 50 left, 50 right spots uh, occasionally on certain instruments. Not not a lot, but on a couple instruments here and there, I'll, I'll use it. But for the most part, things are hard left, center, or hard right um, with the occasional 50-50. And I've noticed on a couple mixes I've heard recently that uh, some of these uh, mixers will, they they won't um, prioritize the middle. Uh, the The center of a mix is, is so, so important. Uh, we're so used to hearing things in that center. And, and primarily what goes there is 
in order of importance on, say, a rock song, you know, vocal, snare, kick, bass. Kick and bass are about the same importance on on a lot of rock songs, but kick is usually a little more important um, in rock, at least. I mean, there shouldn't necessarily be a ton more than that up the middle in a mix. Sure, there might be a guitar there for like an intro, and that works as long as the guitar and the vocal are not competing for space. But if they are competing for space, uh, you have to EQ it or you have to move it off to the side. The irony is that one of the best ways to fix this problem of like, oh, my mix sounds cluttered and I can't seem to get separation on things. One of the best ways to get things to sound uncluttered is to mix in mono. And I mix in mono quite a bit, actually. I don't talk about it a lot, but I do. It's just a habit, really. I I don't really think about it much. Um, But I'll mix in mono pretty often. So what that means is I will mix for a little while, uh, you know, in normal stereo and pan stuff around and, you know, kind of get my basic balances and pans and things like that. When it comes time to, like, really get things sculpted and carved, as they say, I'll mix in mono for quite a while, a, a couple hours of the mix, and fairly quietly, because you're not being fooled by the separation of stereo, because stereo is a great way to separate things. Um, but if it's not enough, uh, mixing in mono will definitely help, because you're hearing the instruments laying right on top of each other, and you can say, okay, who's too fat? Who's too thin? Who's too bright? Who has too much mids? Who needs a little more mids? And you're not being blinded by the coolness and the width and the separation that stereo creates. So that's a big factor when it comes to packing the middle in a bad way. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the outsides. Okay, we live in a generation full of stereo. And, uh, you know, if you check the mix in mono, mix in mono for a little while, you'll probably be fine. You'll learn a lot, too, doing that. Learning like... Oh, that's interesting. When it's in stereo, it sounds good. But when it's in mono, I feel like the guitars are way too loud. And so you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, what what then? You turn them down, but then you go back to stereo and they seem too quiet. Uh, so maybe it's an EQ thing. Okay, so maybe I need to pull out some 1K or something. Leave a little more room for the vocal. All right, well, now it sounds good in mono and in stereo. Like, you learn some interesting things doing that. And maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. Um, but you learn interesting things. So, so definitely be very cautious of clarity and separation. It's a fine line between like something, a mix that sounds nice and separated and a mix that sounds nice and glued. Okay. So don't just like seek out to get the most separation that you can on everything because then the mix might not glue enough. Um, you know, and you want it to sound cohesive and like it's one performance, but uh, yeah, that's a big problem. Uh, some mastering engineers mentioned, you know, they'll get a mix and they're like, they feel like the whole mix is just cluttered. It also is very easy to do when mixes have too many layers, you know, too many tracks. So that's another factor as well. Don't be afraid to mute something. You don't always have to keep everything going and you probably shouldn't keep everything going the whole time. That leads us into number six. Number six is the static mix. Now, what do I mean by static mix? I mean a mix that doesn't change throughout, okay? There's guitars going the whole song. There's a tambourine going the whole song. There's drums, the same volume, the whole song. The vocals have the same tone and the same effect the entire song. Obviously, this is a big function of songwriting and arrangement. 
if the song is meant to be just straight away the whole song, then hey, that's cool. But all the more reason for you to intervene as the mixer and help it change and grow and shrink and have some dynamics. Um, as we've talked about before, dynamics, you should not keep your, don't keep your vision minimal and limited to volume as the only form of dynamics. Because it's not. We have tone and we have width and we have density. You know, how many instruments are in. You cut out to the drums and the vocal, all of a sudden the mix feels really small. Even if the volume didn't change at all of those instruments, um, you know, you took out the like the bass or you took out the guitar or you took out, you know, something that was there and all of a sudden it feels really sparse and open. And then all of a sudden all the instruments come back in and it's like super dense. So there's lots of different ways that we can make mixes dynamic. For, you know, an in-depth discussion about that, there's a lot about that in my book, uh, Three Dimensional Mixing. Little shameless plug for myself, but uh, that's a that that could you know be shows upon shows about just that topic. But don't be a victim of the static mix. Too many noobs will put up a mix and they're like, yeah, sounds pretty good, and then the chorus will come in and they're like, well, okay, I need to turn up the snare a little bit, and then they'll go back to the verse and the snare's a little too loud, and they'll try to just find this magical point where everything works throughout, and it probably won't, you know, uh, it probably won't work throughout the whole time. Sometimes it can, it depends on the song, um, but generally speaking, you're going to have to automate something. I mean, otherwise, the song has zero dynamics. Like, if you're not automating something, the song has, like, zero dynamics, or you recorded incredible musicians, I'm talking like world-class musicians, that all were in the room together reacting to dynamics identically at the same time, which is very unlikely. But, so the, the key here is to use automation. Now, automation is your friend. It, it can be your best buddy for the rest of your mixing life. You can automate anything, basically, these days in a DAW with plugins. I mean, from compressor thresholds to that compressor bypassed to, you know, sends to faders and pans. And I mean, anything you can imagine can be automated throughout a mix. Now, you don't necessarily have to go crazy with it, but don't be shy with automation. Automation, especially when it comes to, you know, later in the mix, once things have been compressed and kind of smoothed over and sort of like the mistakes have kind of been smoothed over and fixed and things are all like nicely faded and edited and all this stuff after the recording session and all this. Some of those dynamics can get sort of blurred and smoothed over and not, not, they don't pop out at you anymore. Like get into it right now. If you don't automate your mixes now, get into it. Okay. That is the solution for boring static mixes. Don't ever assume that, you know, you can get a perfect fader balance and it's just going to sit there for four minutes. Okay. That fader balance is important. Like you need to get that. That's your static mix and then automate to make it interesting. Okay. So number six, don't be a victim of the static flat mix. It's boring. I don't like it. Listeners don't feel anything when they listen to it. Nothing pops out at them. Nothing grabs their interest. Stuff doesn't change and grow. This verse sounds just like that verse. You don't want that. You want things to change, grow, and be exciting. All right, number seven, loose bottom end. Now, this is a little bit different from an EQ problem because the loose bottom end comes from 
some different things. Obviously, you can you can have a loose bottom end by having too much low frequencies on instruments that don't need it. Say you need to start you need a high pass filter the vocal because there's like air conditioner rumble, things like that. I'm not necessarily talking about that. That should be a given. You know, if you don't have 20, 30, 40 hertz on something, you just just high pass filter it out. You don't need it. Don't you really don't need it on an electric guitar. You don't really need much below, you know, 80 hertz, if that. Maybe sometimes higher, sometimes a lot higher. It depends on the part. If you're playing a lead line, for example, uh, if you're playing something really high on the neck, why why would you put a high-pass filter at like 100 hertz if the lowest note being played is, you know, up at 300 hertz? Go ahead and put that filter all the way up to, you know, 250, 280. You don't, you don't need it. You know what I mean? So anyway. Not necessarily talking about that, but that's important. But loose bottom end primarily comes from the relationship between the kick and the bass and also the relationship between compression amongst the instruments potentially on the master bus. So this is, this is really hard to talk about in a short amount of time, um, but a loose bottom end will very rarely, you know, that's a good way to sound amateur. If you're going for amateur, then sure, go for your loose bottom end. Um, but most of us want to, you know, not sound amateur. We want to sound great. We want to make great sounding mixes. And a loose, flabby, farty bottom end is, you know, one of the quickest ways to sound amateur. Where you hit the kick and it goes, Bleh. you know, that's not what we want. We want to define punch. We want to define boom. We want to define you know, thump, whatever that type of sound you want for the kick is. And obviously a big part of that comes from the recording. A big part of it does. Um, and it comes from the room. And again, if your room acoustics in your mix room are not up to par, then you're going to have a hard time hearing if that low end is clear or not. So point being, there's lots of factors here, but a loose bottom end, you know, first of all, the, the kick and the bass need to be played really well together and if they're not you know and you have the uh, permission to edit you know whether you're just mixing or whatever you know the kick and the bass need to be tight so if you need to edit that bass to fit up to the drums do it uh, if you need to make sure that those hits don't flam with each other or that you know one isn't coming before the other in an awkward way for example if the ba bass usually tends to come slightly behind the kick transient and if it does, it needs to come slightly behind the kick transient every time. You know, very rarely, or you know, they, they need to have that, that pocket together. Um, so loose bottom end obviously starts with the performance, but and it start and it comes starts from the recording. But in the mix, uh, it comes to things even as simple as gating on the kick drum. If the kick drum has too much ring down there, it can sound really tubby and make the entire mix sound tubby and muddy. Um, you know, if the bass, if you're experiencing one-note bass from either a crappy-sounding bass or you're in a room where you recorded the bass and it has a terrible resonance issues, you know, down in the low end, um, you can get one-note bass, which is awful. And it basically, you can't hardly hear the bass changes. It's a, a, another clarity issue, but that leads to your low end sounding mushy. Um, when you compress things improperly and they pump in a funny way, there's nothing wrong with pumping, in my opinion, as long as it pumps right. But pumping in the wrong way where things sound awkwardly squished 
and they kind of suck like a suction cup on your face um, when they shouldn't. Uh, that's really distracting to me. Um, whereas, you know, you listen to like the compression on when the levee breaks on the drums. I mean, it's actually quite intense compression, but it sounds so good. You don't even think about it. You know, you don't even think about like, wow, that's, those drums are actually fairly compressed on when the levee breaks, but it sounds so awesome because it's pumping right. It's pumping correctly for that application. Um, and only you can decide what, you know, what that is, what those settings are. Try not to use too fast of attacks. Like, be very picky about what gets a fast attack. Uh, you know, and because you're just going to chop all your transients off. If you compress everything with a fast attack, all your transients are just being clipped. You know what I mean? And that's no good. By the end, it just sounds like, you know, you've put L2 on everything and chopped all the transients off and there's no punch anymore. Then your bottom end sounds mushy because your top end isn't presenting that transient information saying, here I am, I'm punchy, it's chopped off. You know, so the, all those factors go into a, to a loose bottom end. You don't want that, okay? Another thing is just the straight up designation of what goes where. Like I, I've said before, like there's not a lot of stuff that needs to really go below 100 hertz, um, you know, and even below 200 hertz, be very cautious about where things are sitting. If I had to just do this rough off the top of my head, I'm thinking, you know, rock mix, right? Kick, maybe it's sort of life is around like 60, 70. I like my kicks kind of low. Uh, some guys like them more like 70, 80, 90. I like them more like 60, 70. Um, bass is sort of like around the kick, like, you know, 40 to 100 Guitars are kind of big around 100, so maybe the bass is less important there. Uh, you know, 80 to 120 or something is pretty big on guitar. You know, toms are somewhere in there. Snare drum is usually like uh, 150 to 200, and so is vocal. But the snare is intermittent, and the snare also has like a fairly wide... You know, it goes up to high frequencies too. Um, and so... Under 200 hertz, you know, and the vocal, of course, is depending is somewhere between 100 and 300 is really where the vocal kind of sits, you know, but again, it, that's just off the top of my head. So like you have to kind of think in your mind, like, OK, who deserves what space? Like you can't have the snare boosted at 150 and the guitars boosted at 150 and the vocal boosted at 150 and the bass boosted at 150. Like it's just you're just going to have a lot of 150 in the mix. So you kind of have to be like, all right, well. Again, if you start with the vocal, you can prioritize and be like, all right, so this vocal's kind of sitting like the low end of this vocal is kind of like, say, 200 hertz area. So maybe I need to pull back like uh, some of the snare in that area uh, and, and make the snare just a little bit brighter. Or maybe I need to pull back the electric guitars in that region. Um, it's a little easier if you're talking about like clarity and separation of instruments. It's much easier to separate like a bass and a vocal than it is to separate an electric guitar and a vocal. Now, one thing electric guitars have on their side is that they're usually panned, but like a bass and a vocal or like a snare and a vocal, you know, they're up the middle. So that has to be a frequency decision. I hope that I didn't say that too fast because that's really important. Um, you know, just think about where everything kind of lives and think about what you can get away with, you know, in those regions. And, and, and I mean primarily in the lows, in respect to the lows. Obviously, the mids, the same thing kind of applies. 
uh, and high mids and things like that. But again, try to find where things speak in the lows. And and if you need to gate that kick, then gate that kick. It can actually help quite a bit. It's one of the few things I don't mind using a gate on. And another thing of, as far as mushy low end, if, if done correctly, a master bus compressor can really tighten up the low end on a mix, especially if it's an, an analog compressor. It just has this magical tightening effect. Um, the glue that people talk about, you know, that's one of the things that it does is it kind of solidifies that low end. And it also makes sure that the mastering engineer isn't trying to like make mix bus compression come out of nowhere and then have to master it. Because like a lot of the time, if you don't add a, a mix bus compressor, they will. And that might throw off your balances. Don't have a mushy low end. It's it's a really it's a bad thing. It's very commonly found, and and it and it will make your mix fall apart completely. All right, number eight. Don't over compress. Uh, it's a really common thing. Like once people get to kind of understand compressors, they get obsessed with them. I read an interview with. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say a name and it'd be the wrong person. I might be confusing another. Anyway, read an article and uh, the, the guy was saying, uh, the engineer, well-known engineer, was saying, you know, compression is like a drug. Like once you once you have a taste, like you just want to do it all the time. <laughs> and and so you, you once you kind of figure out how to use a compressor, you get obsessed and you start putting it on everything. You know, don't do that. I highly recommend trying to get compressors, if you're in the digital domain, with a parallel blend knob so something with a wet dry mix so you can blend in some of the dry signal that way if you do over compress it's actually pretty easy to kind of just like back it down without necessarily changing your settings you just kind of blend in a little bit of the original signal um, there's a lot of plugins out there now that have that wet dry mix uh, and it's really really cool i love parallel compression but uh, and sometimes you can get away with compressing something a lot but just barely blending it in underneath the vocal. Now, it's really interesting because I've seen people get really creative with some of the compression they do that's really heavy, but often what I hear most of the time is stuff just sounds slammed. It's not necessarily that the settings are wrong, it's just that it sounds slammed from either just using too much or from using too many, like some guys will just put a compressor on every channel just because they think that's that's what people do. Um, it's very easy to mishear compression when you're mixing too loudly. Uh, so I highly recommend trying to mix quietly in your mixing space. Uh, it's a little easier to hear compression. And I also recommend, you know, only compressing what you need to. Like, you probably don't need to compress that electric guitar. and I mean, unless it's, like, super clean, like, more like a, you know, John Mayery or, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers, like, clean guitar. Um, but if it's, like, a distorted guitar, you probably don't even need to compress it. Like, just automate it if you need something changed. Um, bass might need it. If it's played really well, you might not need it at all. You could probably end up compressing kick and snare, but you might not need to. Maybe just some drum bus compression works just fine. Again, if you need to compress something, like, have a reason. You know what I mean? Like, have a reason in your mind that you could justify. Like, if you, if I had to audit your mix and I went through every channel and I said, why did you do this? If you have no reason, if you're like, oh, you know, just to kind of control a little bit, 
Control what? Would you know? Would you have an answer? Like, well, you know, uh, just like levels. It's like, but what? What? Like, was it played unevenly? And that's why you slammed it. <laughs> like, <laughs> did you really need to slam that compressor minus twenty dB of compression or minus ten dB or whatever to get evenness? Most likely, you did not. You know, most likely four dB or even three dB would have been totally fine. You know, or even like two, three dB and some automation would have sounded way better, way more natural than just slamming the vocal. And again, I understand the artistic applications of it. I understand that, you know, intense compression can be super cool. Um, but a lot of times I'm not hearing it in like an, artis uh, an artistic way. I'm hearing it in a, you know, I can't really get this to sound good. So I'll just compress the crap out of it and then it'll sound passable. Um, I think that's a weak mentality to take in a mix. I think it's a cop-out. Um, and I think that it, you'd be much better off actually just really diving in and learning about all the different settings on compressors and different compressor plugins, what they do, what they don't do, you know, what they do well, what they don't do well, and, and really be careful about... Again, it's the same thing with the EQ. Like, don't EQ something unless it needs it. Don't compress something unless it needs it. And if you don't have a reason, if you can't think of a valid reason, you know, then why are you doing it? Um, you know, you, and you can't just cop out with like, oh, man, I'm just feeling it. I'm just feeling it needs compression. Uh, you know, it's not quite the same. Um, you know, compression, it, it's it's a dynamic thing that's, that can really affect the entire tone of a source. And, uh, you know, if you do it, it, it probably needs a reason. So, don't overcompress, and again, this is another thing I'll say, this is a note from the mastering engineers, don't put a limiter on your master bus. I've said it before, but mastering engineers, you know, they wanted me to relay this. Do not mix with a limiter on the master bus. If you have problems with your master bus clipping, then your fader levels in the mix are too hot. If you feel like you get backed into a corner at the end of every mix, then what you should do is when you start your mix, put all your faders down, you know, select all of them, momentarily link them, bring them down 10 dB, then unlink them, and just turn up your speakers, turn up your monitors, and just listen louder. Take off the, you know, the, the limiter from your master bus. Compressors are fine. That's something different, right? Compressors in the master is, is for, like, gluing and gelling the mix, but limiters are generally to keep people from clipping, um, or, you know, or whatever, or sometimes people will mix, you know, taking off two, three, four dB from their L2 and they're completely distorting their perception of what is actually happening with the transients. And it will be impossible to really make good decisions about compression, about like dynamic function in a mix, about like space and uh, all these things. It's, it really makes it hard if your master bus is slammed you just can't tell what's going on. And, you know, I've heard a lot of mixes like that where they're just, man, the, the entire mix, it sounds like everything's got compression on it. So don't overcompress. It's really, really important that you learn how to use a compressor and mix quietly, tread lightly, leave yourself headroom, leave the mastering engineer headroom. You know, I would say safe thing for mastering um, there's not really a defined one, but, uh, today I'm feeling like saying, 
you know, no peaks above maybe negative three, no peaks with your average level, maybe negative 18, negative 20, something like that. Like you need a lot of headroom on your master so that your mastering engineer can actually do something. And even if you're mastering it yourself, which I don't recommend, but if you are, leave mastering as a second separate process. Don't try to, I've trust me, I've when I started, I did the same thing. I'd try to put a compressor across my master bus and, you know, uh, turn the ratio all the way up and use it as a limiter. I'd, in the early, I tried uh, the uh, L1 on the master bus and I'd try to mix and master in one shot because I, I couldn't afford a good mastering engineer. Trust me, I know the, I know the, the whole game, right? Um, I've been there, but don't do it. Be better than that, okay? Don't, if you're gonna, if you have to master it yourself, treat it as a separate process. It's just, it will teach you much better mixing habits and you'll be in a separate session and you'll actually be mastering it as a, as a, as a stereo wave file. And it's a separate part of the brain that does, you know, those sorts of decisions on a grand sco scope. Cause otherwise you'll just get lazy with it and just pop on L1 and be like, all right, it's mastered or L2. Um, anyway, so don't overcompress. Number nine, mismatching transients. Now, this one's a little bit odd, um, but a mastering engineer that I know um, gave me this tip. He's also a drummer, and uh, I thought it was really great. And I and now and once that he said it, I was like, wow, you know what? That really does bother me when I hear that. Um, so basically, what I mean by mismatching transients is when, uh, say, for example, the kick will be clicky, but the snare will be fat and smooth, or the kick will be fat and smooth and the snare is really ice picky or the toms are nice and fat and full, but the rest of the kit is really punchy. Uh, the acoustic guitar like pokes out of the mix when it should sit back. Like basically transients, just not like the transients of instruments, just not matching up in the right way. And again, like sometimes the acoustic can be really picky, but sometimes it needs to be smooth. Just paying a little more attention to those types of details. So, like, if the kick is kind of smacky, then the snare and the toms should probably be kind of smacky too. They all kind of need to match to sound like one cohesive instrument. And if the drums are smacky, then the bass might need to be a little smoother. It can't necessarily be as spanky or slappy or poppy either, so... Uh, it might, it might be able to be, but you need to adjust it so where it's spanky enough, but it's not stepping on the drums. And, you know, the vocal, so basically just, just be a little bit more aware when compressing or when automating of those things. That might help with, you know, the previous, you know, over compression problem. Maybe you're not, maybe you're not listening to compression for what it really needs to be controlling. Um, you know, a compressor by nature turns things down. That's what it does. Now, yes, technically speaking, you could say, well, it turns up the quiet stuff and it turns down the loud stuff. Um, but really all a compressor is doing is turning down the stuff that goes over the threshold and our makeup gain then turns it, turns the whole thing back up. Uh, to go, you know, to match our original level, which effectively turns up the quiet stuff. But really, a compressor is just an automatic volume, you know, controller that turns stuff down when it gets over a certain point, right? 
And sometimes people get too obsessed with compression in a, in a macro dynamic sense, like over the course of a song or even like throughout a verse, when a lot of the comp- compression moves we make are on a very fine microdynamic scale, like the attack of a kick drum. So if you need something to have more attack, then, you know, you need to slow down the attack of the compressor so that it's turning down the stuff after the transient. If you need less attack on something, then you need to make the compressor fast so that it's turning down the transient. If that makes sense, it's, it's you know, you talked about it on the compression show, but I just need to clear that up. Make sure that you're controlling the right part of the transient. And make sure, like, if the vocals need to be popping out at you, that you're not just slamming the vocal and hoping that that makes it pop. You know, that you're making sure that the compressor's not so fast that it's chopping off all of the consonants and just turning the vocal into a big, like, blur of vocal. Depending on the song, all these different transients and all the different, like, tones of, like, the attack on things... You know, is it like a really chunky attack? Is it a thicker attack? Is it a pokey sort of attack? Is it like a clacky sound? I mean, whatever the attack may be on whatever instrument it may be, just make sure that it fits. Just spend a little extra time thinking about that. Number 10. This one's really important, and uh, I saved it for last. I wouldn't necessarily say it's the most common mix mistake, um, but it's very common. And uh, it's that a lot of mixes that I hear from uh, noob mixers and guys in home studios, uh, they lack vision. They lack a clear thought. Now, again, this starts way before the mix, back in the songwriting. But your job as the mixer is to make sure that that vision comes across. For example, if you have an angry sounding, like if you have a song that's angry, that's supposed to be angry, you know, why would you add like like that 10K on that cymbal? Why would you add like a big hull reverb on the vocal? Why would you do those things? It, I mean, I guess it might work in the right circumstance, but like you you need this vision that connects with the song that is sort of a plan in your mind to say, okay, what's the song about? What's the point of the song? What am I here to do? You know, why am I, what, what is this mix for? What do they need more of? A lot of times our goal as a mixer is to, you know, I love the quote that says, basically our goal is to turn down the bad stuff and turn up the good stuff, um, which is actually kind of accurate on a lot of different levels. Um, but uh, in reality, a lot of times we want sort of a heightened state of reality. You want a heightened emotion, a heightened intensity, a heightened, you know, whatever. The idea needs to be clear. It starts with a song, yes, but um, it's very easy for mixers to miss the point of a song. And they just kind of mix and try to make it sound good. And yes, while a great mix can take people to a good place, and I do think that good mixes make a big difference, things like the effects and the intensity of the song and the, the amount of compression or EQ and the balance between the instrument and, and like... Uh, you know, what, what is featured, what stuff is featured as being important, you know, especially when you've got a mix with a lot of layers, like, you know, if you've got a a rock song and you've got like piano, but you've also got electric guitar, um, you know, which one do you choose to feature? Well, check out the lyrics. What are those talking about? Does that give you any hint? 
Does that give you any sort of inkling? Like, you have to use your brain. You got to use your brain and think about it. Like, what does this song feel like? And how should I then support that feeling by what I do? If the song feels dark, you know, and kind of brooding, like, don't feel the need to add a bunch of top end because you think it sounds good. Um, you know, that's just one more reason why people will often, they'll make a mix that on paper, you know, sounds great, right? But it misses the point of the song and it misses the point of what's being trying, you know, what's being said or it misses the story. And it's just, there's a disconnect there. And again, like the average consumer they don't understand this stuff. They don't understand mixing. They don't understand feelings and tones and like how a guitar tone can evoke a certain feeling. They don't know why. They just, they feel it. You know, if a mix sucks, um, they can't tell you why. They probably can't even tell you like this mix sucks. Like they don't even necessarily even know to say that. They just hear it and think, hmm, I don't really like this or it doesn't feel right or... It's, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't get it. So those sort of like unconscious decisions that they make in their head, like they still are important. They don't know how to explain what they're hearing, but they feel a disconnect in a mix that's done that way. Whereas, you know, think of a song that, that you really love. It's very like, you know, a, a popular song even. Like it's likely that the emotion that is in that song is clearly captured by the music and by the mix. You know, if, for example, the song is about being lonely, you know, how how much stuff can be in that mix? Like, doing a song about being lonely, but then having a bunch of layers, that doesn't make a lot of sense, now does it? Now, I know this might seem all a little abstract and sort of like out of the blue, but it's really not. I mean, music is an expression, and why, why does it make sense to express a feeling of loneliness with a lot of instruments? Think of that song, you know, one is the loneliest number, right? And it's like the piano and his vocal up top. Uh, you know, that's, a, that's such an, it makes sense, right? It make, just makes sense to us. And an intimate song, you know, if a song is sort of a love song or serious song, it might be played like on an acoustic guitar and it might be acoustic and vocal and it feels intimate because of the choices made musically but also in the mix and the tones chosen. And uh, so you have the ability to manipulate the focus of the listener and the sort of like unconscious feelings that are happening by what you're doing. So take it seriously. Have a vision. I mean, a big part of mixing is vision. It needs to scream the vibe of that song, whatever that is. If it's a happy song, an angry song, a political song, a funny song, whatever it may be, it needs to scream that just for days. That's what it needs. And it needs to be clear to the average Joe, like this song is all about rocking out. This song is all about dancing. This song is all about partying, having a good time. This song is all about how I love this girl or whatever. I mean, it needs to scream that, obviously, and just be so evident that it makes people feel it without even having to think about it. Um, it needs to just sort of come over them. You know, if it's a love song, they need to feel like they're wrapped up and it just, it sounds warm and smooth and it feels good. You know what? I, I think you guys get what I'm saying. Think about, say, in a movie, you know, um, there'll be a scary scene or whatever 
and the music's kind of tense and the violins are, you know, they're kind of doing this tremolo and the, the camera's all tilted and it makes you feel uneasy, right? You feel uneasy because you're kind of having to tilt your head a little bit and you can't necessarily focus on it. It's kind of bothering you to like tilt your head and so you stop tilting your head, but then it feels off balance and you feel like kind of this sort of uneasy feeling because of the way they've uh, shot that shot. And that's done on purpose. I can assure you it's done on purpose. Um, you know, I did a lot of video work before I did audio and I learned a lot about audio through learning about film. For example, how, how you frame a shot has so much to do with how people feel about that scene. So let's say you're looking at a shot of a, a guy and a girl. I mean, you frame it in one way and it, it looks like a fight. And it looks like, holy crap, is this guy about to smack this girl in the face? Or is she about to slap him in the face? Like, what's about to happen? You frame it in another way. Just move the camera, move the, you know, maybe change the lighting a little and move the camera to a different place and reposition the actors. And all of a sudden, it feels like a love scene. And it's like you're in the same room, the same camera, like nothing really changed that's drastic. You just framed it slightly differently. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to mixing. You have to frame the song in a way that makes sense for the emotion of that scene, if you will. And if that scene is, you know, like a love song, or if that scene, even if you want to get it more specific and say the scene is the first verse, okay, well, what's happening in the first verse? What what do the lyrics say in the first verse? Is there anything I can play on in this first verse? You know, next scene, uh, you know, for pre-chorus, what's happening? Is it building? Is it, you know, what's happening that I can accentuate? Where are the lyrics taking me? You know, what's in the chorus? Is the chorus like big and kind of like an anthem? Is what What can I bring out to make lyrics and music make sense together? So that's just, that's, you know, that would be number 10 for you. Making sure that you understand the vision and making sure that you have a plan and you have a vision for what, what can be done for that mix. So I hope you guys have liked this. Uh, I thought it was a lot of fun to compile some of these questions from uh, you know various engineers and from my own findings of people that I've worked on mixes for and whatnot. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed. I hope you learned a lot about some problems you might be experiencing. Uh, all of us, I'm sure, have experienced these problems at one point or another. I know I have. And so don't feel bad. Like you welcome to the club. We we've all been through these types of things. Some people get stuck on one more than more than the other. I hope that I've given you some solutions that maybe you didn't think about to help uh, fix those problems. Uh, at the end of the day, just keep working at it. Keep trying. Don't give up. You know, try to try to just see towards the end you know just keep on going because I, you do get better it seems slow it seems like you're not getting better at mixing but you are trust me um so now for all the uh for the all the goodies if you want to send me an email my email is recording lounge podcast at gmail.com questions comments show suggestions uh, advice anything send an email my way you can check out the blog at recordinglounge.blogspot.com. Check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash recordinglounge. Uh, I do appreciate all the comments on there and the messages and uh, appreciate also a side note, uh, all the positive reviews on iTunes. That means a lot to me. 
and uh, also the uh, emails. I always love getting emails from people. Um, so thanks for all of those. You can sign up for the mailing list if you want, which I believe the link is recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. It's a really cool thing. I don't spam you, I promise. Uh, I just mainly send emails to alert you when new episodes post or if there's any cool extra info uh, for something, if something needs clarification. Um, nothing really major, um, but it's really helpful to be able to just send an email to a recording lounge, uh, a, a lounger directly rather than having to go through social media and things like that. Also on the blog, there should be a PayPal donate button um, that you can set up as a one-time payment or a monthly uh, subscription, basically, kind of a thing, to donate to the podcast. And that's, uh, you know, a no obligation. That's if you feel led to do that. Uh, I've gotten a couple donations so far, and, you know, it doesn't matter to me if it's a dollar, if it's $15, if it's $7, or some of the donations I've gotten. They they all mean so much to me that you guys uh, want to keep the podcast going, and, um, you know, I don't make any money from doing this podcast I don't do ads because I think it's annoying. I don't have sponsorships. I'm not, you know, endorsed by any gear that I talk about or anything like that. Uh, I'm an engineer full time and I do this for fun and to give back and hopefully teach some people about things that I've struggled with uh, in the past and things that I struggle with currently and, and hopefully uh, can, can help people along the way in their careers. So I really appreciate those donations. I just wanted to take a minute to thank to thank those that have uh, donated. Again, no pressure for that. It's totally up to you. Um, but anyway, I hope the show has been informative. As always, I will talk to you next time. Send me an email for questions, comments, show suggestions. Recording Lounge Podcast Gmail dot com. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks. <laughs>